as your pastor, it is my heartbeat to present you on the last day mature in Christ. That is one who will one day give an account before the Lord for how I brought the word of God to bear upon you. It's my heart to prepare you for that day. And one of the ways I, I encourage you to do that is through church history. Um, if you'll notice that through a lot of my preaching, I like to bring examples and stories of brothers and sisters throughout the ages who have remained steadfast and faithful to Christ, even in the midst of great hardship. In fact, I would encourage you that in your own time to study biographies, to study church history. Why? Because it's going to strengthen your faith. It will stiffen your spine to stand firm in the Lord. It will warn you of where there is danger in your future. It will teach you of where God has been faithful. Church history is a wonderful way for us to learn how we can be faithful today. It's beautiful to be able to look back upon thousands of years of brothers and sisters all around the world who've remained steadfast and faithful because God is faithful to his people. One of those people is a man named Tertullian. In the second century in North Africa, Tertullian was a man who was fully Roman. He loved the Roman life, heavily involved in sexual, sexual immorality. He loved going to gladiator games and seeing the bloody, messy games as Christians were giving their lives there on the arena floor. But there came a moment in which the testimony of these men and women whose lives are being taken there by these gladiators, his heart was pricked. He realized that he was a broken man and he needed grace. At the age of 40, Tertullian humbled himself, gave his life to Jesus, and became one of the most powerful authors and theologians of the church within his day. He became so dangerous as a follower of Jesus that the Roman Empire was raising up against him and began to persecute him. But he declared to his persecutors these words, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. Others have translated some of his words as to him saying, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped or thwarted by persecution or martyrdom. Nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop the church. And in fact, God multiplies the gospel through the death of his people. And we see that truth come to reality in Acts chapter 8. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family and seeing this wonderful historical narrative of how the church began and how the mission of the gospel began in Jerusalem and then spreads out to the ends of the earth. We just finished up a couple of weeks ago, a seven-week walkthrough of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. 
If you want to go back and look deeper at the Old Testament narrative of, of Stephen's sermon, you can go to our website or on the Westwood app. Stephen has just gone toe-to-toe against the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme High Court. He walked them through the Old Testament and revealed how they were the ones who rejected the prophets. They were the ones who rejected the law. They were the ones who rejected the true temple. They were the ones who ultimately rejected the Messiah Jesus. Furious with Stephen's accusations against them, they dragged him outside of Jerusalem and stoned him to death. Stephen's death was a watershed moment in the history and life of the church. God used the martyrdom of Stephen as a catalytic moment that would have far-reaching gospel ripple effects that would impact the nations. But one of the key players that God would use to get the gospel to the nations is standing in attendance at Stephen's death. And that man is Saul of Tarsus. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. In God's sovereign providential purposes, the man who is overseeing the execution of Stephen will become the one that God will use to reach literally billions of people with the gospel. This morning, I want you to notice in the text Saul's egregious aggression against the church and how the Lord uses it for the glory of God. I want you to see the first thing in the text. The first is this, Saul's approval of Stephen's death. Verse 1, Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. Saul was so angry that as he heard Stephen's bones breaking, as he saw Stephen's blood spewing on the ground, it only fueled his bloodlust of wiping these Christians off the map. Now, we're going to really get to know this guy named Saul because the majority of the book of Acts is committed to him. In fact, when we get to Acts 13, he becomes more well-known by his Roman name of Paul. Luke spills a lot of ink over the ministry of Paul. But here in verse 1, he's not yet a great pastor, theologian, church planter, or missionary. In this moment in chapter 8, he's the church's arch enemy. See, Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a rising star in Judaism. When he gave his resume to the Philippian church, he told them, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Here is a man who studied under Gamaliel, one of the leading Jewish scholars of his day. In fact, we met Gal- Gal- easy Bruce, Galileo 
back in Acts chapter 5. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and Paul studied under him. In fact, R.C. Sproul makes the argument that, that Saul in that day probably had the equivalent of two PhDs. He was a master of the Old Testament, was probably the most educated man in the entire country. And now, all of these followers of the way are multiplying like jackrabbits, claiming that not only that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised one of the Old Testament, but that the Sanhedrin is responsible for his death and that this Jesus of Nazareth defeated death. You can imagine how angry this made Saul as he's passionate not only about God's law, but he's making his living off of it. And now the Sanhedrin that he's a part of is being accused of killing the Messiah. He has this hate towards Christ and his church. His mission, as we're going to see throughout chapters 7 through 9, is to stop the church and wipe Christians off the face of the earth. But question, Westwood, can anyone stop the church? For thousands of years, kings and governments and empires have sought to snuff out the church, and they have failed. Jesus promised that not even the gates of hell will rise up against the church. Hear me, the church can never be stopped. The church of Jesus Christ will preserve itself and be, uh, will persevere to the end by the power of the Holy Spirit. God will protect his people. God will protect his church. And as this man, Saul of Tarsus, the most educated man in the entire country, has this vitriol, towards the church as he is about to pour out his anger upon these people, the church will persevere. But on that day, verse 1, not only does Stephen die, but a severe persecution breaks out against the church, and the church is scattered. But what did you see the church do when they scattered? Where did they go? Look at the end of verse 1. Throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Okay, so I'm hoping like right now we're starting to get some, some bells going off. Ding, 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 ding. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we memorized that verse together as a faith family. Before Jesus ascended up into heaven, he says, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here we go, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At the end of Acts chapter 7, the church is still in Jerusalem. It has not expanded out yet. But through the death of Stephen and the persecution that comes through Saul of Tarsus, now what Jesus promised would happen in Acts 1-8 is coming to fruition. Please understand, Jesus always keeps his promises. Make no mistake, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. There's coming a day in which people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered, Revelation 5 and 7, around the throne of God. And we will sing what we just sang together as a church. Worthy is the one who was slain. To him be all glory and honor, power and dominion forever and ever. The great commission will be fulfilled. And here is the means in which God is accomplishing it. It is through, through Stephen's death. The gospel is marching forth to Judea and Samaria. God had a great commission plan, and he uses persecution. He uses martyrdom as a catalyst to get the gospel to the nations. My family goes hiking quite often, 
And when we go hiking and we find a body of water, my four boys usually think, oh, a body of water, I get to throw rocks. Something God has put within boys to throw rocks at water. I don't understand it, but it's just a lot of fun, okay? And my boys, they'll throw all the rocks they can at the water, and we'll tell them, hey, that's enough rock throwing, and then they'll throw one more. You know how that goes? Well, their favorite is to get a big boulder, the biggest one they can find, and they will chuck it as high in the air as they can just to see the splash, the squadoosh in the overflow. And the water begins to just overflow. It has this ripple effect. Well, as the stones and boulders are falling upon Stephen, as these rocks are splattering his blood, it has a ripple effect to the nations. It is through the death of Stephen and the persecution that ensues after it that there is this ripple effect to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as those who love and believe and affirm the sovereignty of God, we know who is behind this. We understand that God is the one who ordained the death of Stephen to accomplish his greater purposes. We are those who understand how God is working, even through suffering to accomplish the salvation of many. It's amazing that this ripple effect, it reverberates to the nations. Little did the Sanhedrin know that God was going to boomerang their efforts to stop Christianity. And in fact, it leads to millions of people to come to Christ. Beloved, Jesus always keeps his promises. But after Stephen's death, these devout men, they bury Stephen. And the text says, verse 2, They mourned deeply over him. Beloved, when tragedy strikes, when persecution comes, it is right to weep. In fact, we're commanded in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. When we see brothers and sisters around the world who have their lives taken for the sake of the gospel, it's right for us to mourn. And simultaneously, we are not those who mourn without hope. For we know that God is up to something bigger than we can see. God loves to display his power through weakness. That even through death, God is able to redeem it and use it for the advancement of the gospel. So that his name and his renown might be treasured throughout the nations. And yet we are also to grieve over sin and the effects of sin. Which is what we see happening in Saul's approval of Stephen's death. The second thing I want you to see in the text is Saul's attack of Christ's church. Saul goes on the offensive and he attacks the church. Luke uses the word, verse 3, ravaged. That word means to destroy. It means to ruin. It's a word picture, kind of like a city being destroyed during war. It pictures someone being mangled by a wild beast. Saul was terrorizing the church, and as he tore the church apart, it was a bloody mess. Fathers are being yanked out of their homes and arrested and thrown into prison. Children are becoming orphans as their mothers are being separated from them violently and sent into jail. Paul would never forget this moment. 
he would never forget what he was doing. In Acts 22, he was on trial in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. And this mob that wants to tear him apart, and he gives his testimony, and he says in Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. It wasn't a badge of honor. When Paul referred to himself in 1 Timothy 1.13 as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, he was not exaggerating. Paul had the blood of saints on his hands. So what does the church do? They run for their lives. With the apostles staying in Jerusalem, the rest of the church scatters throughout Judea and Samaria. But did you see what they did as they scattered? Look at verse 4. They went on their way preaching the word. Okay, these are people who've left behind homes and jobs and salaries. They've left behind friends and security and land and familiarity and comfort. And they are sprinting for their lives to safety. But as they do, they understand the mission remains. Don't miss verse four. All of these believers They're involved in evangelism. It's not just a handful, but everyone who's fleeing for their lives were simultaneously preaching Christ. They had heard the gospel. They had believed the gospel. And now their natural instinct by the Spirit is to preach the gospel as they go. And these preachers, they're not seminary trained. These are fishermen and blacksmiths and stay-at-home moms. These are marketers and salesmen. These are farmers. These are ordinary, common people who have not had the training of Gamaliel. They've not had this incredible, deep training, even with Jesus himself, but they've heard from the apostles. They've heard the gospel. And so what do they do? They go about preaching the gospel. They go and tell people about this Jesus. And it's everybody. It's everybody's going out. It's not a select few. It's not paid professionals. It's common folk who are running for their lives, trying to get to safety, bringing their kids and anything they can hold in their hands. And they're going on to different cities as far as they can. And they're preaching the gospel. And it's so impactful. What they're doing is that what happens is they start planting churches. In fact, when you get to Acts 11, we are going to see where, uh, I'm sorry, it's Acts Acts 13. We get up there, um, Acts 11, I was right the first time. Paul and Barnabas, right? They get up to Antioch and they realize, oh, snap, this is like a healthy church. And they're shocked. Like, where did these believers come from? How did this church come into existence? They're blown away by it. Well, Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Okay, Phoenicia, that's modern-day Lebanon, about 380 miles north of Jerusalem. Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, 285 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And Antioch, 300 miles north. And Antioch, as we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, becomes a, oh man, this is a church, y'all. I mean, it's a hub of mission activity. 
in which they're sending out missionaries and church planters to the nations. They're financially funding those who can get the gospel as far and wide as they possible. Oh, that Westwood would be in Antioch. That we leverage our resources to get the gospel to the nations. That left and right, people are saying, I'm in. Send me. I'll go. I want to get the name of Jesus to those who have never heard yet. Oh, that God may be raising up those of you here in this room or those of you engaging online. He's stirring your heart with a people you've never met yet. And he's stirring you and preparing you and calling you to go and get the gospel to those who have never heard. Oh, that we would be this kind of church. But it's amazing to me is that God is using persecution to lead to gospel advancement. It reminds me of Genesis 50, 20. It, um, uh, come on, Kenneth, Joseph. I was there. Give me just a minute. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And the salvation of many. You got this, Kenneth. Thank you. I need you, Peyton. I need you. I'm writing for you. I love you. You're a gift. <laughs> I love it. May Lord raise up more Paytons. I love it. I love you, brother. Little did Saul of Tarsus know that his murderous threats were advancing the gospel. It was 1807 that the, the first missionary, Hudson Taylor, goes to the shores of China. And he begins preaching the gospel Fast forward about 150 years to 1949. Mao Zedong becomes the chairman of China. He outlaws Christianity. At that time, there were about 4 million Christians in China at about 1949. And for about 50 years, this communist reign is terrorizing Christianity. Many believers lost their lives. Today, there are 100 million Christians in China. In fact, some forecasters are predicting that by the year 2030, there will be more believers in China than in any other country in the world. It's a common saying amongst missionaries. Mao Zedong was the greatest evangelist in the history of China. Isn't it remarkable that God will take those who persecute the church boomerang it against them to advance the mission of the gospel. And it's amazing to me to think about even as our culture here in America is mocking Christians, they don't realize that they're mocking believers who are in Asia, and Africa. In fact, we're in the four corners of the earth. And as persecution arises against the church, we do not fear. We know what God is up to. He's doing something bigger than we can see. In fact, I put this in my notes. The water that Satan thought he was pouring on the church's fire through persecution turned out to be lighter fluid. God will protect his gospel. He will, he will protect his church. And he will even use persecution as a cattle prod to advance his kingdom. Not even the gates of hell can stop the church. So y'all, even as we look at the bloody death of Stephen, be encouraged. Three reasons why. First, God works through persecution for the good of his people. If you think about Stephen for a moment, what happened to him was horrible and heartbreaking. And yet simultaneously, his death for him, it meant rest 
It meant reward. It meant resurgence of the gospel. Rest. Okay, so Stephen is dying a painful, horrible death. But the moment he takes his last breath, Christ. Like Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? He takes his last breath and there is Christ standing, Acts 7 tells us, to receive him. He is a reward. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you for my name. For great is your reward, Jesus promised in Matthew 5. But also a resurgence. The gospel flourishes. Through his death, God gets the gospel far and wide. Can I just make a personal testimony? I came to faith in Jesus reading 1 Corinthians 2.9. The guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 2.9 is Saul of Tarsus. Now, God is the one who, has, who saves. God's the one who rescues. And yet simultaneously, he sovereignly chose to use this persecutor of the church to reach me thousands of years later through his writing. And how many more in this room and around the world are followers of Jesus because we've heard the gospel through this great theologian who is breathing out murderous threats against the church? So be reminded here, God works through persecution for the good of his people. Secondly, God hears your prayers for unbelievers. He hears your prayers for unbelievers. There is Stephen being stoned to death. And what does he pray? He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this against them. And the person who's hearing him pray is the very one whom God will use to get the gospel far and wide. God is hearing your prayers for unbelievers. Don't stop praying. Persevere in your prayers. Keep bringing unbelievers to the Lord, asking God to open their minds, open their hearts, to put believers into their lives, that they would hear the gospel and believe that the Holy Spirit would change their hearts, that we would be people who don't quit praying for unbelievers. You see, the response of believers in the midst of difficulty, trial, and persecution is not anger. It's not vitriol. It's compassion. It's prayer. Why? Because what Christ commands us. But number two, that's who we used to be. Before you knew Jesus, you and I, we were enemies of God. We were without hope. We were shaking our proverbial fist in his face. And yet God showed us compassion. And someone was praying for you praying for your salvation. And so now we join the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 10.1, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my kinsmen according to the flesh. For I wish I myself were cut off from Christ so that they might know him. It's my urgent cry and prayer to God that they might be saved. With tears streaming down his cheeks, Paul is praying for people to come to know Christ. Question, when was the last time you wept over unbelievers? May our compassion towards those who hate us be matched with our passion for prayer. Saying, oh God, would you rescue them? God, would you turn their heart towards yourself? God, would you bring them to faith in Jesus? And we keep praying, we keep praying, we keep praying. 
I'm reminded of a church member here at Westwood where a man who's in his mid-80s, his wife was similar in age. For 40 years, she prayed for his salvation and she died. And two weeks later, I preached a message from Matthew 18 on church discipline of all things. And he's sitting right back there. He comes forward, gives his life to Christ. Don't quit praying for unbelievers. Keep praying that God would open their hearts to believe. God was kind enough to hear someone's prayer for you. And as you're praying that God would put a believer in their life to point him to Christ, don't miss how you very well might be the answer to someone else's prayer. That's someone in your life who you get to share the gospel with. God has already heard the cry of someone else praying for you as you share the gospel. It's amazing how the Lord works in his economy of salvation, of inviting us to be a part through our praying and through our preaching. He does the saving, but we participate. It's also amazing to me. I know he's God hear our prayers, but the view of the gospel is that God can save anybody. It's amazing to me. Here's this Saul of Tarsus, bloodthirsty for the death of Christians. In fact, what we're going to see in 10 years when we get to chapter 9, <laughs> where he's on his way to go and imprison more Christians when Jesus meets him and changes his life. You are not too far gone. There is no sin you've committed that is too great from God's grace. There's no egregious acts that you've ever done that keeps you from the grace that's available in Jesus. Hear me, no matter your past, Jesus is available to save and forgive you. No matter what's gone through your mind, what's come out of your lips, what's festered in your heart or the actions of your life, the power of Jesus is greater. No matter your past, he stands ready to save you and receive you. The gospel is the beauty and the power of God where God goes on record to show you his love through his son's death at the cross. That the blood of Jesus was enough to pay for your sin in full. That anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ by faith, he will receive you. God loves you so much that he offers you forgiveness and grace through the shed blood of his son. That your forgiveness was purchased by Christ at the cross that he volunteered to take your place so that you no longer have to suffer for your sin. He suffered on your behalf. Oh, how great the father has lavished his love upon us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And that is what we are through faith in Christ. And you become a child of God by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. And he will receive you the moment you believe the gospel. This is what we have all signed up for as followers of Jesus. All of us have messed up pasts. All of us has sinned against a holy God. All of us deserve wrath. But praise God for Jesus who stepped in and took our wrath for us. At the cross, he paid for your sin in full. And beloved, you're no longer under condemnation. He came to set you free through his blood. You're free from sin, free from the power of death, free from hell. Why? Because Jesus took all of that for you so you don't have to. God can save anybody. No one's too far gone from the grace of Jesus. Which means when we see unbelievers acting 
in anger towards us, when they mock Jesus, when they belittle Christians, we don't clench our fists. We don't mock back. We don't get angry. We don't get on social media and fire back zingers. We show compassion and love and the grace that we have received in Jesus. We respond by praying for those who persecute us. And we pray, oh God, open their hearts so that they might see. And God, would you put people in their life, even me, to show them your love, not anger, not retribution, but kindness and compassion that God has shown us in Jesus. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's our, your impact point? It's this. As you are scattered every week throughout Shelby County and beyond, keep preaching the word. We see it there in verse four. They went on their way preaching the word. So when you go to your garden club or ROTC or to your ball field or at the kitchen table, at the board meeting, there in the classroom, keep preaching the word. You keep preaching Christ. You keep pointing people to Jesus, not only with your life, but with your words. You're declaring the hope that's found in Christ. This is how the gospel gets to the ends of the earth. And the gospel is how people who are far from God come to faith in Christ. It is through God's people preaching the word. You know, I could be wrong, but the next Billy Graham may be drunk right now. The next person who wants to get the gospel to the nations right now is an atheist. A future pastor of our church, long after I'm dead and gone, is someone who's an evolutionist right now. But someone is going to come and tell them about Jesus. Someone is going to show them the love of Christ. Someone is going to pray for their salvation. And they're going to be broken and realize their need for a Savior, just like us. And their hearts are going to be changed. And God's going to take this broken person and change them. And then send them out. People like Paul. And people like you. And people like me. Praise Jesus for his kindness.